From the Orange County Fire Authority, this is the Pass Along Podcast, where we address firefighter issues from top to bottom, from your helmet down to your boots. Now, here's your host. Hi, and welcome back to the OCFA Pass Along Podcast. My name is Brian Yell, and I am a firefighter paramedic currently assigned to the EMS section as the Supply and Equipment Coordinator. I'm going to be your host for the four-part series of this podcast. Today, we are doing something a little different than usual. On September 28th, the OCFA hosted the Vegas Strong After Action Review of the Route 91 Harvest Festival shooting in Las Vegas. Since then, we've been preparing the presentations from that event so we can make them available to everyone who wasn't able to attend. You can find the video versions of the presentation on Target Solutions, and there is a post-test in there so you can get the whole whopping one continuing education credit for each presentation. You can also choose to listen to the presentations as a podcast and take the test on Target Solutions afterwards. We wanted to give you a few options to access the presentations so you can learn what we learned that day. This is the third podcast in our four-part series and features Dr. Scott Schur. He was the emergency department director at Sunrise Hospital, the local trauma center in Las Vegas closest to the incident. His hospital received the bulk of the patients. Here is Dr. Schur. We'll start with this video and then we'll get going. Why are the people laying on the ground? Why are the people laying on the ground? It's 10 p.m. and more than 20,000 people are watching country singer Jason Aldean at the Route 91 Harvest Festival. Across the street, the gunman Stephen Paddock is in a corner suite on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Hotel. He planned his attack meticulously. He had assembled an arsenal, bolted an exit door shut, installed surveillance cameras in the hallway, and calculated his elevation and distance from the crowd. A few minutes into the show, Paddock fires what appear to be single rounds from his hotel room. Video timestamps reveal that this happened after 10.05. Why doesn't Paddock fire more rounds at first? There are at least two theories. He's checking that the range and trajectory of his gunshots match the calculations he made, or he's firing at fuel tanks in the nearby airport. Whatever the reason, an uneasiness fills the crowd and people move toward the exit. 30 seconds later, we hear what sounds like automatic gunfire. first of 12 bursts Paddock fired at the festival. More people begin to leave at the rear and lights are turned on. Around the time of this first burst, security officer Jesus Campos is looking into a separate incident when he happens to come across the door Paddock had sealed shut. Paddock appears to be alerted to Campos as he is leaving and fires through the hotel door wounding Campos in the leg. Campos takes cover in a doorway and calls in the shooting on his radio. The police and armed security officers begin to respond from within the hotel. 36 seconds after the first burst, Paddock fires a second one into the crowd. The cracking sounds you hear are bullets passing nearby. 
The intensity suggests Paddock was aiming very near this area by the front of stage, the densest part of the crowd. There is a short interval here of 17 seconds. People begin to flee again. But then a third burst of fire opens up. The changing pitch of the crack suggests Paddock is spraying the bullets around the area. A fourth burst hits the crowd just 20 seconds later. By our count, Paddock has now fired over 300 rounds in less than two minutes. The scenes that unfold at this point are distressing. There are multiple injuries stage left and people begin to treat the wounded around them. At this point, there's a break in the shooting of almost 1 minute and 50 seconds. We don't know what Paddock is doing during this interval. It's possible he fired down the hallway again. We have reporting that by now, Campos has been joined by hotel engineer Stephen Shook, who reports gunfire on his hotel radio. It's at the end of the hallway. Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you what room he looked like he fired down the hallway when I got close to the door. Whatever the reason, this break in the shooting allowed many people to move to safety. At 10.08, a police car arrives along Las Vegas Boulevard. A minute later, police officers are moving along a wall in the direction of Mandalay Bay to get eyes on the shooter. They direct fleeing concert goers back into the venue and away from gunfire. Hands your guys! Get down! Go that way! Get out of here! There's gunshots coming from over there! Then Paddock fires a fifth burst. It's around 22 bullets in three short volleys. We hear this same burst from a different angle, at the Mandalay, where cab driver Corey Langdon was filming. Here's what it sounds like up close. Our reporting suggests that Paddock was positioned directly above the camera at this point. Then, just 40 seconds later, you can hear very dull and hollow gunfire. Now it sounds like it's coming from um, farther away. These rounds were not picked up by cameras recording in the festival at this time. That, plus our additional analysis, suggests this is Paddock firing indoors again, possibly toward Campus and Shook, who are still in the hallway. This lull in shooting outside lasted just over a minute and allowed more people to flee. But then, a sixth burst of fire. Twenty seconds later, in a seventh burst, Paddock appears to take aim at the police. Just 20 feet away, more police are taking cover behind a patrol car. They take direct fire and call it in over the radio. It's now been over six minutes since the shooting began and the area at stage right is mostly empty. But people are still taking cover at stage left when Paddock fires an eighth burst. 
Meanwhile, at the Mandalay, Paddock fires a ninth burst of fire right over a line of cabs and into the crowd. Taxi driver Corey Langdon still sees no signs of panic. Where are the cops at? I'm right here by the porch at Mandalay Bay and everything just seems to be normal here. And hotel guests are still by the lobby. You guys, there's, there's a shots fired. But actually, police were there. Up in the hotel, two officers are closing in on the gunman. I'm in front of Mandalay Bay on the 31st floor. I can hear the automatic fire coming from one floor ahead. One floor above us. And even as police are responding both inside and outside the hotel, Paddock unleashes his 10th burst of fire. More police cars approach along Las Vegas Boulevard. Further along, people are fleeing through the rear between bursts. Keep your head down, run this way. Nearly a minute and ten seconds pass before his eleventh assault. By now, Paddock is no longer firing in long, steady bursts. Keep your head down, run that way. We don't know why, but he may be struggling with a sluggish weapon or using a different gun. He fires his 12th and final burst as Corey Langdon leaves the Mandalay. It's less than 50 rounds. The rate of fire slows, and at five seconds, it's the shortest of his bursts. All the taxi drivers are gone now. It's 10.17, and concert goers are still fleeing at the far side of the venue. Is there somebody out there? Twelve minutes after the first bullet was fired, police close in on the gunman on the 32nd floor. By now, Paddock is no longer firing on the crowd and police continue to move closer to his room. They evacuate guests. We're doing evacuations as we're working our way down the hallway. We're about 1.30. I need everybody in that hallway to be aware of it and get back. We need to pop this and see if we can get any type of response from this guy. And see if he's in here or if he's actually moved out somewhere else. Breach, breach, breach. We are clearing this room. We have one trust father. The police find 23 guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition inside Paddock's suite. By our count, he fired close to 900 rounds at the festival. The police say he fired another 200 into the hallway. Paddock was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot. The 64-year-old killed at least 58 people, and over 500 were wounded. It was one of the deadliest shootings in modern American history. It's not a question of uh, if this is going to happen again, it's a question of when it's going to happen again. So we all need to be better prepared um, pre-hospital and hospital setting. So, so again, more than 800 ca uh, uh, casualties. Uh, we saw over uh, 500 people, 400, over 400 people were shot. 13 area hospitals uh, participated in the care of all these patients. Um, to note, 58 people died. Uh, however, only 14 patients who arrived to area hospitals alive so that's a tremendous response. And also, too, lucky that this was a country music festival. 
Um, I kid you not, I saw multiple patients that, that arrived in our ER with, with tourniquets, not your standard medical tourniquets, but bandanas, shirts, things like that. The only thing that was a pain in the ass, everybody had boots on. <laughs> so trying to feel for distal pulses was a little bit difficult. Um, and then, you know, like Chief, Chief said, you know, about 70% of these patients were self-transported. So this changes the way that we think about our mass casualty uh, preparedness uh, in our triage system, and it really affected the way we did things. All right, so uh, patient egress. Um, this was important, I was just talking to Karen from Desert Springs, is that the, uh, the slides that you guys saw here, uh, Tropicana is a major um, north or uh, east to west corridor. Uh, Maryland Parkway is uh, north to south. And when you look at the egress of the patients, it basically is taking them to both of our hospitals. Uh, so that's why we, we saw the bulk of the patients there. Uh, overview of the valley with the, our hospital. So we have uh, we basically have 2.2 million uh, uh, people in our catchment area. That doesn't include the 40 million visitors that we see a year. We have only one level one trauma center and uh, one level two trauma center and one level three trauma center. And you can see the, the map here at Las Vegas. There's Las Vegas Boulevard. The egress of the patients kind of taking, taking those patients to Sunrise and to uh, Desert Springs. All right, so um, just wanted to mention the, the response from all the other hospitals. So this is Valley Health System. Karen's going to talk about her response here, but you know, without talking about the whole team effort in our hospital system, but um, I would be remiss to do that. Dignity Health um, is a community-based system. They saw 87 patients that, that evening. Most of them were self-transported. Um, this is our level uh, one trauma center, University Medical Center. Um, you can see they uh, only saw 104 patients. Uh, they did a fantastic job. Obviously, we saw registered patients, 215 patients, non-registered patients, about 260 patients. So you can tell that we had no capacity to take any, any transfers uh, that night or the next, the next morning. So our university hospital took the majority of those transfers. So that was fantastic. And this is uh, my hospital system, HCA. Uh, Sunrise Hospital, 212, 215 patients. Uh, the rest of them were community hospitals. They all basically were self-transported. So uh, 16 area hospitals, 13 of which received patients, and again, 14 patients that arrived to the hospital alive, only 14 patients died. So a tremendous kudos to all of our staff and our hospitals. Thanks. Uh, not just the hospitals, but uh, our EMS uh, police uh, partners. I mean, you know, you ask a police officer if they would ever self-transport or transport a patient to the hospital. The answer is hell no, right? Um, we had a lot of cops that transported patients to our hospitals. Uh, huge team effort. This is uh, Sunrise Hospital. So um, <coughs> Sunrise Hospital is a level two uh, trauma center. We see 165,000 ER visits a year, um, uh, about 150 ambulance uh, EMS runs per day, uh, so it's a fairly busy hospital. This hospital used to be in a very affluent area. Um, I don't know, has anybody watched the movie Casino? Right, so this is basically two blocks away from the, where the, the golf course where the FBI had to land on the, um, the fairway of, of one of the golf courses. So this was funded by the mob. No, seriously, it was funded by the mob. And if you kind of see the ER is over there on that side of the hospital, 
Uh, we're building a new ER and a new trauma unit here, as well as some ICU beds. So they started digging holes um, uh, over there, and they found multiple dead bodies. Oh, just kidding. <laughs> it could happen, right? I mean, it's a mob hospital. So fairly busy, fairly busy center. There's our trauma numbers there. Uh, so this is a group of uh, my team with the trauma surgeons. Also, we, uh, we were able to utilize our uh, trauma surgical residents at a sister hospital in order to help with our response. Okay, so there's our demographics. So 212 patients, uh, 212, 215. Um, identification was a huge issue because um, uh, in this concert, you were not able to bring any bags, purses, or anything like that. So we had 30 unidentified patients, 92 patients, um, arrived with no ID, so this was a real stress to our trauma identification process, and it really broke our trauma identification process. Our trauma identification process was trauma and whatever first name that this person was gonna get, right? So it wasn't really organized. So there was a lot of Debbies that like trauma music, or uh, country music, because we had multiple trauma Debbies, which was an issue. Um, you didn't want to put the wrong chest, the, the chest tube into the wrong trauma debit. So we've since changed our registration process. We used the NOAA, basically the weather alert um, for hurricanes, and so we'd have to have more than a thousand patients in order to have a duplication. 64 admissions, 31 of those admissions went to the ICU. Um, I point this out because you'll see with our physician and our nursing and ancillary staff response, um, those 31 patients. Um, probably would not have made it if we didn't have the response that we did. Um, 83 surgeries performed basically in the first 48 hours. Um, gave a lot of blood, obviously. All right, nurses. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Nurses love this one. So uh, I, we were lucky enough to have one of my docs was a, a SWAT doc that was that was on site um, that night, and when he started to hear the chatter of what was coming in, he went down to his, um, to his vehicle, got his SWAT radio, um, and so we probably knew um, how bad this was uh, before other area hospitals. So we were able to mobilize all of our ground floor assets uh, to our triage bay, to our ambulance bay, uh, and then what do you do with the, the patients that are there? Um, you know, when you're expecting to see this amount of people. So we cohorted all of our patients uh, together um, that still had an active workup. Um, we took, yeah, surprisingly, at Las Vegas, we see a lot of drunk patients. <laughs> Don't know why. So we took all those drunk patients and put them in our psych unit. <laughs> yeah. Imagine being like 23 and hammered and waking up next to a crazy homeless schizophrenic. <laughs> Um, they moved all of our admits upstairs, uh, but a majority of them left AMA. I mean, they looked around and they're like, you know, I guess my diarrhea is not that bad. Uh, except one guy. Got to tell the story because it's actually pretty funny. So I was running around like I did that night, and in one of our ambulatory areas, I see this guy, he's limping around, and I was like, it doesn't look like he probably went to the concert, but who knows, whatever. Um, and I was like, sir, um, have you been shot? Are you hurt? Can I help you? And he says, no, man, I wasn't hurt, or I wasn't shot. I was at Walmart, and a shopping cart hit me in the leg. <laughs> and I said, unless the shopping cart shot you in the leg, you can get out of my yard. 
I, I really thought those words were going to come out of my mouth on my last day of work. <laughs> but circumstances, right? So, uh, physician and, 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 and nursing and ancillary staff response were huge to save as many lives. I mean, I think the, 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 the save percentage that we had at our hospitals was tremendous, and it was because of the hard work of the men and women that showed up. 100 physicians and um, ABCs, nurse practitioners, PAs, they all showed up. Over 200 nurses and ancillary staff showed up. So by the time all of the nurses showed up, basically every one of these shooting victims had a one-to-one -one nursing ratio. It's awesome. Uh, this is my team, so 20 emergency physicians uh, and APCs. Uh, we also run the hospitalist program there, which was a huge benefit for us to clear out the hospital side. And then 18 scribes. So these scribes are 18 to 20-ish, you know, pre-med, pre-PA, um, you know, they came in and helped us document. Not only did they help us document, they helped our broken registration system by putting people in the right location in the ER. Uh, but that's a huge stress for an 18 year, 20 year old. So, you know, when we did our crisis uh, management afterwards, we made sure that we had to include them because they really, really did lose their innocence. Timeline of events, and this is kind of shows how rapid this happened and how this occurred. 2205 was the first shots. Um, you can see our first private vehicle showed up 20 minutes later. Um, our first ambulance showed up at uh, 2229, and when we talk about, and Chief can attest to this, and Karen can attest to this, when you say an EMS arrived with a patient, no. I mean, unless the patient was actively being coded in the back of the, the, the ambulance, there were five or six patients in each one of these ambulances that showed up. It was a cabinets. <laughs> All right, so we triaged the first patient to the ICU at 2,300 hours. That's super, super fast. So when, uh, when this started to occur, we realized that we had too many sick patients, too many vented patients uh, to keep in our ER. Um, the patients that needed to go directly to the operating suites, they went directly to the operating suites. Um, Neurosurgeons. So neurosurgeons are considered the albatross of medicine because you can never find one. Um, well, we had four of them respond. So anybody that had an isolated GSW to the head, um, they uh, were stabilized, uh, the airway was stable, uh, no other injuries. They went directly to the neuro ICU, um, and the neuro um, ICU doctors were able to take care of them upstairs. Did the same thing kind of with the GSWs to the chest. Um, if they didn't have any surgical needs, so we would intubate them, uh, put in chest tubes. If they didn't need to go to the OR directly, we had probably about 20 anesthesiologists show up. They all ran the rooms in the OR, but they also worked upstairs in the ICU to help and continue the resuscitative matters upstairs. So we moved all of those patients upstairs. So that really kind of helped us with the real estate constraints that we had, because you'll kind of see our ER is really not that big uh, to see this many patients. Uh, code triage was called, so that's our kind of MCI code, code triage. So that was a delay that we, we didn't call that right away. We should have called that as soon as we had confirmation of the first patient uh, to arrive. Uh, so a couple of key personnel were not notified, um, lab, um, some people in radiology uh, were not notified. Uh, we completed our five, five first surgeries before midnight. Um, obviously, these are damage control, salvage surgeries. Uh, for those of you uh, in the room that don't know what that means is, is when you are expecting multiple patients that may need operative services, um, you go in, you stop the bleed, 
Um, you stabilize the patient and you go back later uh, to complete your work. So that's how they were able to get these done so fast. Um, we talked about our hospitalists. So our hospitalists, we had three hospitals that showed up uh, right away. Um, the rest of the team showed up before 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we had 167 discharges before 5 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, right? Uh, which is funny because every flu season I'm like, why can't I have 167 discharges today? And then I ask them, I'm like, how did you discharge 167 people? And they said, well, we walked into the room and we asked them if they were shot, and if they said no, we discharged them. <laughs> Simple enough. Um, coroner, so this was basically a crime scene, right? So our, your ER was a crime scene, all the patients there uh, were victims of crimes. Um, so our deceased that we, that we had at the hospital, um, we weren't able to communicate with the family uh, or friends until the coroner had to clear them. So this was very difficult. This is something that um, I sent my entire team home uh, at around six o'clock in the morning and from six o'clock in the morning until about 11 o'clock in the morning, we did death notifications. So this was hard because most of these uh, people did not have IDs. So we had to ID them based on you know, live pictures, um, what they were wearing, tattoos, et cetera. And it's, it was difficult because the family members and the friends were waiting in my waiting room uh, or the makeshift waiting room uh, for almost 12 hours sometimes before we had to let them know what was going on with their loved ones. Uh, so part of your planning uh, needs to be able to work with the coroner, uh, have better communication regardless of what the coroner says um, because you can't have people waiting eight hours not knowing what's going on with their loved ones. And our code triage was cleared at 6 o'clock that night. Uh, 56 surgeries were completed in the first 24 hours. Um, of those physician response, I mean, we have seven trauma surgeons, only seven trauma surgeons. So how do seven trauma surgeons complete 56 surgeries in 24 hours? You can't. Uh, we had pediatric surgeons that were operating on adult patients, pediatric cardiothoracic surgeons that were doing open thoracotomies on adult patients. So again, uh, totally, totally a team effort. Um, th these are arrival patterns. Uh, one of my partners, he's writing a paper, he's part of the academic side, so he's kind of a nerd, he's got more time than I do. He actually watched the video of um, our ambulance bay and our uh, um, ambulatory entrance as well as our hall, main hallway entrance, uh, and he was able to kind of count like the number of patients that we saw per minute. So basically, you can see that number up there is 10. So each one of these lines on the bottom is one minute. Uh, elapsed time. So, I mean, this kind of just shows you the, the, the scope and the velocity of how this occurred. I mean, it was super, super fast. The, the, the shooting was from an elevated position, so obviously we saw um, wounds pretty much everywhere. Um, of course, your head, neck, chest, abdomen, pelvis uh, were our worst, but that kind of just shows you the dispersion of the, the, the types of wounds that we saw, um, the 83 total surgeries in two weeks. Uh, we had 16 uh, patients DOA, uh, or 16 patients died at our hospital, 10 uh, were DOA, 4 were basically DOA, they were unsalvageable, 1 died intraoperatively, um, and 1 uh, we had to withdraw care due to brain death. Um, lots of blood was used, but I think the important thing was is we didn't have much blood waste, so uh, we'll talk a, a little bit of how we were able to mobilize as much blood and blood products as we did. So MCI triage plan. Do you think we had time to put um, ribbons, anything like that, on these patients as they roll through? No. So we kind of had to 
think on the fly a little bit. So what we did is we basically took that same premise, um, but we cohorted these patients, red, yellow, and green, um, by location in the emergency department. So all of our red patients were in our trauma bays and our station one, all of our yellow patients, um, who on any other given day were probably red patients, they just had a blood pressure, um, were in station two and station four, and then all of our green patients were in our ambulatory care areas. So our emergency department is about 40, 45 beds. I mean, we kind of do the same thing as, as Karen does at Desert Springs. Unless you're dead, drunk, or dying, you are sitting in a chair. So, um, so we rapidly expanded into the pediatric emergency space, and then we rapidly expanded into the uh, PACU space and the pre-PACU space. Uh, we've done that before into the PACU space. Every New Year's Eve um, is a planned mass casualty at sunrise. Um, it's actually pretty cool. I mean, Chief will tell you this. We, we set up two, two triage bays out front, you know, one for medical trauma, one for drunk and disorderly, and, and, and you know, they go into opposite entrances and we use the PACU. The PACU loves it because like at eight o'clock in the morning, man, you know, they're, 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 uh, um, their PACU smells like sushi and Red Bull and vodka. <laughs> so we've expanded in that space before, and I think that really was to our benefit, knowing that we could expand rapidly into a space and, know, and be comfortable in using that space. So have that kind of in your plan, those of you in the hospital, of how are you gonna expand your emergency department, how are you gonna expand your emergency department rapidly, and also practice it at different times of year. We were lucky because this was uh, not flu season. Uh, it was 10 o'clock at night, our ER, our hospital, our OR was relatively empty, so we were able to expand that rapidly. However, if this was flu season, with 40 holds in your emergency department, yeah, we still haven't figured that out yet either. So. Um, so we uh, had uh, basically this triage was ran originally by a physician, um, however uh, all physician resources were needed in the back. So we were able to use uh, uh, one of our trauma nurses out there as well as um, I think it was county fire. They were there um, helping us, um, you know, sifting and sorting these patients, kind of what they would do uh, on site, but sifting and sorting them uh, into different areas of the, in the, of the emergency department. It's an overview of the ER and the PZR. The PZR doc was awesome. I mean, he, 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 these guys are not used to taking care of, you know, yet, uh, uh, adult patients, but like an adult patient that was shot, I mean, so they did a great job. Pediatric nurses did a fantastic job. We kind of utilized the PZR space um, for all those green patients, and then we used the PACU space for like those proximal GSWs or those GSWs. Uh, to um, uh, the extremities that obviously need, needed surgery, but they didn't need it right now, so that's kind of how we triage that way. Um, and then the adult ER, um, when you think of one gurney and one bay, there was two gurneys in one bay, plus one gurney at the feet, and every, every other uh, hall space was completely utilized. We were, um, we have the benefit of having ambulance and, and walk-up entrance at, on the same side of the emergency department. So we were able to do this type of triage only on one side of the emergency department. I've visited a couple places to where their ambulance entrance and their ambulatory entrance are about 200 yards apart. I mean, that creates problems as well. So we were lucky that we had one area where we did triage for both ambulatory and, non and uh, EMS patients. Uh, again, uh, Triage by uh, uh, severity of illness. I mean, that's what I would kind of take home when you 
have a, a, an event like this that comes with such velocity and, and such magnitude of scope of number of patients, uh, put the uh, uh, patients with severity illness in the same area uh, so you're not missing anything. Um, and that's what we did here. So you can see our trauma bays. Um, and then station two and station four was our yellow kind of orange station and then our ambulatory area. Um, we were able to mobilize 50 crash carts in a matter of an hour. Um, we had a dedicated pharmacist uh, that basically just brought down um, every drug that we could possibly need because getting into a Pixis is not really easy when they're not even registered. Um, and we worked really well with our blood bank. Um, surge, see those little stars there? So, you know, we do have surge carts. You know, we thought we were prepared for a surge. So, I said it before, our surge was New Year's Eve. So, we were running out of chest tubes, laryngoscopes, um, pretty much everything. So, they said, hey, the surge cart is here. I'm like, oh, sweet. You know, we're done. We're, we're going to be able to save more lives. So, rip open the surge cart, the surge pallet. Um, guess what it had in it? Vomit bags, four by fours, and normal sale. <laughs> so we were prepared for New Year's Eve, but not a mass shooting. Um, talked a little bit more uh, about this, and you know, this is just kind of how we triaged our critical par uh, critical patients upstairs into the ICU. Um, those of you in the hospital, I would suggest you guys come up with a plan like this because you don't want you know, 50 vented patients in your emergency department, if you're able to get them up um, out of your emergency department rapidly, um, do that. We were able to do that because we had such a great physician and nursing response. Altered standards of care. Uh, everything in our life in medicine is run by a computer, right? Yeah, it's a pain in the butt when you see 260 patients in the matter of an hour. So computer things break. So what was one of the first things that broke? So radiology, radiology, you have to have a computer uh, um, uh, ordered entry. Uh, it goes in front of a computer. It's taken by a large computer that takes the x-ray and then it goes somewhere in the cloud to a dark room to the radiologist to read it. That obviously didn't work. So uh, we had radiology on site. One of our radiologists followed the uh, portable x-ray machine around with a Sharpie. So write that down. One tool that you need for an MCI is a Sharpie. Um, and basically wrote on whatever we were using to document on that patient what the results of the x-ray was. If it was a pneumothorax, obviously they would tell us, so we would put a chest tube in. If it was, you know, tip-fib fracture, they would just write the tip-fib fracture. This one guy actually, um, everybody wanted to put a chest tube in on this guy because, you know, he had a GSW in the chest, so that's kind of what we did that night. Uh, but he had basically an expanding hematoma basically over his right side of his chest. And I think every one of my physicians was like, does he have a pneumo? I need a chest tube tray. Does he have a pneumo? I need a chest tube tray. Until, I don't know if it was the radiologist or the nurse or whatever, somebody wrote in a sharpie across his forehead said no PTX, so no pneumothorax. So <laughs> he, didn't get a, he didn't get a chest tube. Um, orthopedic surgeons, um, we had a great response from our orthopedic surgeons. Um, they actually know how to do their own H&Ps. <laughs> so um, they took care of every isolated orthopedic uh, emergency. They, if it was something that just needed to be splinted and sent home, they did that themselves. Um, they admitted them primarily to their services so they could operate on them the next day because we didn't do, unless there was a vascular injury, we didn't do any orthopedic surgeries that night. So they were awesome, awesome help. And we already talked about our great neuro, neurosurgeons. 
Um, so we needed to give blood, we needed to give blood fast. How easy is it, the nurses in the room, to give blood in a hospital? It's pretty, you know, you know, for right reasons, right? I mean, protective measures, things like that, but when we needed it, we needed it fast. So our blood bank really worked with us, and they brought down uh, O-negative and O-positive uh, packed red cells uh, to our ER, and if we needed to give blood, it was right there. We tried to reconcile who got blood a little bit later, but they made that available for us. Um, Pixis, we talked about the drugs, of uh, things that we needed. So the things that we needed was Dilaudid, Zofran, Atomidate, and Soxidylcholine. So our clinical pharmacist brought down all of that stuff. The nurses and the docs just kind of put that stuff in their pocket. So if you really, really liked Dilaudid that night, you scored. <laughs> so, you know, trying to, you know, when we talk about alternative standards of care, is what we're doing now is we're trying to take all those things that we bypassed that Joint Commission would probably have a heart attack about and trying to make that, you know, a, 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 an actual standard of care. So, you know, these altered standards of care are, you know, are something that we did, but we we're trying to make it so they're not altered the next time. Uh, yeah, we actually did this. Uh, thank God it was only um, for about 10 minutes, but we ran out of ventilators at one point. Uh, you can put two patients on the same ventilator. Um, this is kind of the device. I mean, if you train in a county program like I did, um, you learn how to do crazy, stupid stuff. Um, but the important thing here is they have to be of basically the same body habitus or size. So if you put a big fat guy on with a little fat girl or a little uh, skinny girl, the skinny girl is probably going to explode. So you have two traumas. <laughs> you just double the tidal volume, basically. So we were able to do that. And we, you know, since we were able to get more vents in the hospital, um, that was only for a couple minutes. Uh, talked all about that centralized uh, supply chains. Our supply chain was actually really good, except it was all vomit bags. Critical shortages, we ran out of um, chest tubes in less than 60 minutes, so we used um, um, ET tubes. Uh, endotracheal tubes are around the same size, just not as long, and we were able to exchange those uh, over when we got them. Chest tube trays, I mean, you nurses know there's too much in those chest tube trays, right? I mean, give me a scalpel and like a curved Kelly and, you know, I'll be, I'll be good. Uh, so we ran out of chest tube trays in, in less than 30 minutes, and then laryngoscopes. Unfortunately, we had to reuse our laryngoscopes on multiple patients. Level 1 transfusers, we ran out of those as well. We were lucky enough to be um, part of a hospital, three-hospital uh, system in Las Vegas. So anytime we were running low on something, we were able to replenish that uh, in a matter, of, a matter of minutes. Okay, blood bank. Uh, environmental services, man. I mean, this is a part of your team that you've got to really remember because they had to clean up all that stuff. So when you start doing your, 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 your critical debriefs, um, make sure you include them as part of their team. They are part of your team, um, but they did a fantastic job of cleaning that emergency department. Probably by 7 o'clock in the morning, you didn't even realize what happened. So um, when I showed up, um, I was actually at home. Um, as medical director, I unfortunately have to have my phone on all the time, so my phone just started going crazy. and. Um, the last text that I saw was just, you know, active shooter on the strip, I report to Sunrise Hospital. Immediately, I just got my uh, uh, scrubs on. Like Josh said, I knew all the cops were busy, so I was going about 95 miles an hour, running red lights, you know, got to the hospital. When I showed up, I kind of saw what I saw, the number of Ubers, trucks, ambulances, patients in the hallways, you know, all over the place. There's no way this could have been one person. I mean, I thought for sure this was a Mumbai-style attack. So my next thought was, how are we going to secure the hospital? So worked with our, our security and Metro Police Department, and we actually had our, our ER secured uh, in a matter of minutes after we showed up.
um, chaplain. So uh, at around one o'clock in the morning, uh, looking out into the waiting room, the waiting room probably had about half as many people that are in here. Um, a lot of them were covered in blood. So if a STEMI were to walk in, we would have missed it. If there was another gunshot victim out there, we were gonna miss it. So we relocated them to the auditorium. Um, we had chaplain and social workers um, uh, work with them, try to communicate as best as we possibly could to those folks. Uh, nutrition, nutritional needs. And this is something um, after the event, but your community is going to respond in such a fantastic fashion um, with water, with pizza, with burritos, with whatever. Um, you have to come up with a plan of how to manage all that, and I'm sure that Karen can attest to this. Our, our auditorium where we're taking all these donations started looking like a Costco. So make sure that you have somebody that's gonna be um, managing all the donations and things like that, because they will come. Um, deployment for crisis counselors. So this is very important. I know that, that uh, um, Clark County Fire did it. Um, I made it uh, uh, mandatory for every single one of my providers um, to have a debrief, whether they wanted it or not, um, especially my scribe, my nurse practitioners. All right, so what went well? We already kind of talked about what went well. Um, we've prepared uh, due to our New Year's Eve surge plan. Uh, we also had a smoke inhalation, uh, British Airway uh, accident, and we do multiple table talk tabletop exercises. Um, stress this enough, if it wasn't for the nurses and physicians, we would have been, um, we would have been in a different place, a bad place. Uh, our blood, bed flow management was really good. Um, you know, having those de debriefments in the hospital with the nurses and everybody else was, went really well. So, uh, lessons learned, um, uh, delay in calling code triage, uh, communication mechanism. I don't know about Karen, but you know, my ER went from 45 beds in a small contained area to basically the entire ground floor of the, uh, of the hospital. So uh, it was difficult for me to communicate from one side of what our ER was to another side of the ER. So I checked my phone, actually, ironically, probably a couple months after, just to kind of see how much walking or running I did, uh, 12 miles. And it was 12 miles because I didn't have a simple two-way walkie-talkie to talk to somebody that was practicing in the packing, so I had to walk. So Sharpie number one, walkie-talkie number two, Let's just throw the 11 blade as, as, as number three. Um, registration process, again, um, look at your registration process because uh, if you don't have something that is not gonna cause um, duplicates, um, it's gonna be an issue. Uh, decedent management, uh, mentioned that a little bit. Um, we had a basic, our makeshift board was our endoscopy suite. Um, pick the right people to be in there. We picked pediatric nurses uh, to be in there with the, uh, the, the people that uh, died uh, or were DOA. Um, all but one of those nurses um, have left Sunrise Hospital. So pick the right people that are gonna handle your deceased. And um, opportunity for county level oversight. I mean, we, Chief and I have talked about this and we're starting to work with the health department of basically having that robust you know, uh, medical response team in order to utilize your guys' talent if any hospital system in our valley gets overwhelmed. Um, MCI, triage, hemorrhage control, airway control. We just need to use all the talent that we can get because honestly, our biggest lessons learned is we lucked out. Totally lucked out. 10 o'clock, Sunday night, relatively empty ED, and I was able to get 
100 physicians, and 200 nurses and ancillary staff. Totally lucky, right? Electronic health record is like being in an elevator that breaks. When it gets overwhelmed, you can't go up or down. So um, minus the electronic health record, if you're not using your electronic health record, use something like paper. It's a little bit slower, but it's like being on an escalator. If it breaks, you can still walk up and down the stairs. All right, there's my tools. That's all I need. The next MCI is a 11 blade, a walkie-talkie, and a Sharpie, and we will all be good. All right, so um, I moved to Las Vegas in the early 90s. Um, from here, I actually lived up in uh, Lake Gregory, Crestline area. Any Rim of the World alumni here? All right, cool. Um, so, uh, of course, it, you, you think about Vegas as being a very transient city, where you're from, you know, I'm from California, I'm from Boston, from New York, whatever. Um, really after this, I think it's really brought, the, unfortunately brought our community together, because now you ask people where you're from, from Las Vegas. You know, really proud. Blood donation centers. We had people lined up for blocks and blocks and blocks. Not only that, they were all given tamales or burritos or whatever. So it was a huge community of support. Um, you know, on the right is actually something that um, Chief Castle and I talked about um, when we were on some press outing that, you know, his guys were struggling, my guys and gals were struggling. So we helped with the help of Boyd Gaming um, and Beasley Broadcasting to put on basically in two weeks um, that first responder concert um, that had basically 14 restaurants, all food and wine uh, that the, the guys and gals could drink. Um, and, uh, you know, Big and Rich came back, Rascal Flats came back, you know, Hannity did some overthink. This was all done in 14 days. We're not doing it again this year. We're doing something else to raise money for our first responder family. Um, but we're moving it away from October 1st, probably for a good reason. So I will end with the video.
That is all for this episode. I encourage you to go back and listen to the other podcasts in this Vegas Strong series. Be sure to log into Target Solutions and take the post test so you can get your CEs for this. We hope to bring you more content like this in the future. If you have any suggestions for future conferences, please reach out to me and EMS. Until then, take care of each other and we'll talk to you soon.